0: Hello, I'm Timothy Gartnash. Welcome to the Europe Stories podcast. What do young Europeans want the European Union to do and to be? Over the last three years, an amazing group of uh, young Europeans have worked with me here at the European Studies Centre at Oxford University to answer this question. And this podcast will present their findings. Hosts Anna Martinsch and Lukas Tse have a series of conversations with the authors of our concluding report, and give you their answers.
1: So I think we can go ahead and introduce our guests for today, both of whom co-authored this chapter in Social Europe, both of whom have a lot of expertise and experience researching social policy in Europe as well. So Christian is originally from North Macedonia and actually has been working with the Europe Stories team remotely, I think, this entire time during the pandemic. And he is currently completing his DPhil in social policy at Oxford and especially coming from North Macedonia is especially interested in questions of EU enlargement, also in relation to social policy.
2: Guillaume is a DFIL candidate in the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford. His thesis is focused on employment patterns of couples in Europe and how social and employment policies can affect the formation of jobless couples.
1: So thinking back on our conversation, I think what's really striking is that both of them have a lot of deep knowledge about social policy, but they're also bringing in practical experience at the European institutional level, but also personal experiences from growing up and from having experiences of different parts of Europe, which I think really comes out in the course of our conversation.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting because Guillaume started out more skeptical about the prospect of integrating the EU further. And Pristijan uh, is much more optimistic about federalization, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think he, he at least started to change Guillaume's mind a bit as we were in this
1: this conversation. Yeah, which is one of the great things that we've seen over the course of these interviews is really how the co-authors often hash out their differences and sometimes come to a new agreement or sometimes they understand their differences in a different way.
2: So could you both tell us a bit about your background and how you came to write about this particular chapter in our report?
3: So currently, I'm a soon-to-be second-year DFL student at the Department of Social Policy, but I'm looking at family policy, particularly uh, in Eastern Europe. My thesis, which is still at a very preliminary stage, deals with uh, financial support for parents in six East European countries and the relationship between the support and fertility rates in these countries. So very much a European topic, even though not all of the countries I cover are in the EU, uh, but at least geographically and culturally speaking. And in terms of social policy, yes, I'm, I'm based at the Social Policy and Intervention Department. I consider myself a proud European. I used to be a member of the Young European Federalists in my home country, in North Macedonia, in our local chapter, the New Federalist magazine of uh, the Young European Federalists.
2: Where are you joining us from, by the way, krista
3: I'm currently in, in Skopje, in North Macedonia.
0: I'm in the second year of my field in social policy, and I'm studying, broadly speaking, employment policy in Europe. I'm interested in the relationships in terms of labour supply within couples, so if one partner works, whether the other partner will be more likely to work or not, and I'm studying that over the last 40 years in European countries, so very much an EU focus, I'm just concentrating on uh, EU countries. and. I've been from, you know, undergrad to master's to PhD without interruption. And in the course of that, I realized that I wanted to get experience from outside academia, I've always been really interested in the EU, as I said, my thesis focuses on the EU and I've always known that I wanted to work in some way on the EU, like Christian, I'm a proud European, uh, definitely feel more European than French, which is my original nationality. And. So to me, it was very natural to apply to work for the EU. So I did a five-month graduate traineeship for them. And I was lucky enough to be selected in the team working directly for the Commissioner for Employment and Social Affairs, Nicola Schmidt, which was a fascinating experience, very intense. I uh, worked at a crucial time as well for Employment and Social Affairs in the you know, aftermath of COVID.
2: Congratulations. By the way, where are you joining us from now?
0: So I'm in Geneva currently, because that's where my dad lives. Let's build on that a bit. So it
1: sounds like both of you have really found this passion for social policy and in particular European social policy. I wonder when you reflect on how you came onto this interest, whether you think it was something very organic um, and natural that emerged from your background growing up. And it's something that perhaps you share with many other people. Um, that you grew up with or whether it's the more particular interest that might be quite different from those of uh, people around you and if, and if so what might have led you onto this more specific path
0: for me it's always been completely natural to be interested in the EU and I feel completely European and I've been really lucky to be honest I was privileged to grow up in a very international environment be able to follow my parents where they worked, took them I went to international schools and it's that environment, really, that made me feel very European, and that's why it's always been completely natural to focus on European uh, issues.
3: I'm a political scientist by training. I did East European studies with an emphasis on politics, both from my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree. It always fascinated me how post-materialist these European countries that I have focused on have become. Uh, Always these cultural issues that people prefer to talk about, um, a lot of nationalism involved. And the the issues that really matter, in my opinion, the domestic social issues, economic issues, are usually sidelined. So that has motivated me to try and disrupt the status quo and direct the focus, at least as an academic, uh, in the mainstream. It's it's more difficult towards uh, social policy uh, and domestic politics more broadly because it really tends to be uh, neglected in in my region of focus of course being from north macedonia some people would say still clashes with being european despite the obvious geographical and cultural belonging because my country has been trying to join the european union for almost what is it 30 years now and we're still not even close to doing so because we haven't even um, opened our accession talks with the EU so i have been very frustrated with the union at times but uh, Luckily, until now, at least, it hasn't interfered with my with my broader European identification. And I have, throughout the years, been a strong advocate for the European integration of my country. I've written op-eds about it. I've uh, done public advocacy on that topic. So, yeah, those are the European gateway and the social policy gateway for me into writing this chapter.
2: Christijan, you mentioned that in today's public discourse, cultural issues seem to be prioritized over social issues. Uh, Did it surprise you that in your findings in the first section of the report about what young Europeans want, you came to the conclusion that for the majority, of course, there are nuances and and we'll discuss that, uh, it seems that young Europeans are still mostly concerned with social policy issues. Do you want to comment on that?
3: Well, let's start with the qualitative insights that we got from the interviews that are available on on the website of Europe Stories. And there, actually, we didn't get a lot of mentions of social policy and social issues in general. I think what we have in the report, and the last Guillaume and I counted, of course, the number of interviews is changing constantly on the website. But uh, what we were looking at was probably about four or five people identifying social policy and social topics in their interviews. So that wasn't a lot, but of course, we can also attribute it perhaps to people thinking that social issues are obviously important, so there is no need to highlight them. And in interviews, you have to only cite three specific issues that you consider to be most important in Europe right now. So that was maybe not necessarily a surprise because people do tend to focus, at least in my experience, more on, on cultural issues. But yes, in terms of our opinion polls and the quantitative insights that we have acquired, social policy and social issues seemed to be very high up on the agenda, and that was certainly a very positive uh, surprise for me. Of course, for our chapter, we drew on our own polling at Europe Stories, but also other polling sources, the Eurobarometer mainly, the European Social Survey, and uh, most of them, or even all of them, seem to be pointing uh, in a similar direction. So um, social issues are important for everyone, but especially for young people, and more so than most other issues out there on the menu. So, for example, young Europeans stand out from the general population in mentioning inequality as the second biggest threat at the moment. Then also, young Europeans have emerged as disproportionately concerned with job insecurity, even compared to people above the age of 46, we found in in one of the sources we looked at. And then also, fighting poverty, fighting economic and social inequalities, and boosting employment, ran as three of the top five uh, priorities for the EU among young Europeans. So clearly, uh, social issues are, are very
0: salient. I, I wasn't that surprised because a lot of these young Europeans would have known very uh, closely the effects of the financial crisis and the sovereign debt crisis. And so, we're talking about people who might be 15 to 30 years old. And so, loads of them were probably just graduating from university or into their first job or just beginning on the job market when this crisis happened. And we know how high still today, but especially at that time, unemployment was for young Europeans. And so to me, it feels kind of normal, but also reassuring in a sense that these social issues haven't been completely forgotten when you see the complete polarization of the discourse on certain cultural issues. And then more recently, we've had obviously the social consequences of the pandemic. So when you take these two factors into account, it wasn't a complete shock to see it like that.
1: Before moving on to the next question, let me just make sure to mention that we will have the links to the polls in our podcast notes. So many of these very interesting findings. Don't worry if they're flying by you in the conversation. They will be in the notes. So Guillaume and Christian, I would really like to ask you about a very interesting finding that, or at least a suggestion, which is a difference between young Europeans and very young Europeans, possibly in terms of the relative weight on social policy versus other adjacent, but nonetheless distinct areas such as the environment. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that difference what exactly are these two groups? How do, how do you define them? And what might be the difference, as well as why might there be such a difference?
3: In general, as I said, all, all sources seem to be pointing in a similar direction. And, and that's really the high salience of social issues for young people. But there is this important subdivision. So in most of our sources, very young Europeans we consider it to be people in their late teens and early 20s. And then those slightly older would be young or older young Europeans, if that makes sense, because there, there were usually some differences, not very significant, but some differences uh, between the two groups. And that's what we describe as a cohort effect in our report. So basically, everyone older than 22, 23, I would say in most of the sources would rank social issues as most important. But then among the slightly younger subgroup, you would have people ranking the environment and education as more important than social policy. Uh, So the question that arises is, once these people who are in their mid and late 20s now leave this age group, whether social policy will still be dominant in this age group? So when the children of today, in other words, uh, become the young people of tomorrow, will our conclusion still stand? And of course, what Guillaume mentioned about the the previous big crisis, uh, the financial crisis of course of 2008, uh, whether that might have played a role, of course, because these older young Europeans do remember very vividly the crisis, and that might not be the case so much for, for the slightly younger subgroup. But then, of course, we have to qualify this, because even if those young Europeans in their early 20s uh, prefer citing the environment, for example, that's still a very slight difference. So in our polling data, uh, it was just a couple percentage points, so social, social issues are, are still very much um, important to them as well. And thinking of crisis, of course, we, we can't omit the ongoing crisis with, uh, the, with the COVID-19 pandemic, and whether there, there might be a period effect as well. There's so another thing to keep in mind, because uh, in the more we looked for our report at sources and uh, polling cycles from those sources from the last four or five years, I would say. And the most recent waves usually indicated even more a salience of, of social issues. So there might have been a COVID-19 effect there, which might not necessarily be be permanent. So we'll we'll have to uh, keep an eye on how that develops after the pandemic is more or less over.
1: Before passing on to Guillaume, maybe I can just open up an opportunity here to reflect on the pandemic, which obviously is both very important and rather unknowable at this point in terms of the effects on attitudes towards social policy. In the report chapter, you hint at this uncertainty in terms of the possible effects of the pandemic. So we're now a year and a half into the pandemic. We have a number of interviews, we have a number of polls. And of course, in the past year and a half, you've also observed the people around you, the conversations that are happening. Do you see a possible shift in the relative importance
0: of social policy Certainly at European level, I think it's emphasised even more than before that the EU has a role to play in social issues. And to be honest, the EU always had some sort of social role, sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker, especially weak at the start of 2010 and the sovereign debt crisis where the main focus was on austerity. But I feel like the importance of social issues in general and of what the EU can do has really increased when it's such a global crisis, when incomes have been badly hit. And we've seen that the EU has set up a scheme called SHORE to help member states establish and finance short-time work schemes. And my feeling from that is that, yeah, the pandemic has put to the forefront issues of employment, but also of income maintenance, poverty. And even if you think of a country that's not in the EU anymore, but the UK, I mean, the UK, which was the epitome of the small state for the past 30, 40 years, have set up a furlough scheme that was maintained for such a long time. And I thought from a Tory government as well, I mean, I thought that was quite telling in terms of the general shift in Europe, in terms of the attitude towards public spending and social support in general. But of course, the question is whether it will be lasting after the pandemic.
2: Our interviews with Europeans from different generations are a central component of the Europe Stories project. You can explore their answers about their formative, best and worst moments on our website, europeanmoments.com. Several of those moments mentioned throughout this episode are linked in the description. Christian, I think it was you who mentioned that one of the tentative explanations for, in our interviews, the concern with social policy not being as pronounced as it is in the opinion polls and other polling. So one of the explanations that you mentioned is, you know, it's such an obvious issue that people don't really think of it when they're confronted with what should be the priorities for the European Union. Could it also be that because the European Union has this reputation for doing relatively well on this front, it's also seen as taken care of, and therefore people are thinking of what the European Union should be focusing on that's not been so well taken care of, for example, is a case of the environment. If so, if you do think that this is a tentative explanation, how do you square that with the fact that young Europeans and very young Europeans in particular don't seem to be very well informed about what the EU does in social policy? And perhaps when um, answering that, you could uh, start by telling us a little bit about what the EU actually does that young Europeans don't know so much about.
3: Again, I have to qualify my, my kind of interpretation of, of those qualitative insights that we acquired. I mean, again, here my background as a East, Eastern Europe expert might play a role as well, because In East European countries, talking about social policy can be a taboo sometimes because if you're talking about social policies and um, advocating for more left-wing approaches to to policy in general, you immediately can be accused of being a a socialist or a communist. So there is that part uh, as well, whereas in in Western Europe, as we saw from our polling numbers, that might not be so much of an issue. But yeah, in terms of uh, the broader picture and how informed young Europeans are, so of course, on the one hand, from the numbers, it, it seems that social policy is all they're, they're thinking of, but then when you scratch under the surface a little bit, uh, there was this incredibly inconsistent statistic that we came across. Respondents were asked about the European Pillar of Social Rights, an important initiative in this regard, introduced by the EU in 2017, people aged 15 to 24 are even less likely than the general population to be able to describe it. And I emphasize even less likely because even the general population is highly unlikely to be able to describe it. It's 8% for the general population and 6%, remarkably low uh, for those aged aged 15 to to
0: 24. And to bounce back quickly on um, the reason why it might not be so mentioned by people in interviews, I'm wondering whether it could almost be the reverse in the sense that people know social issues are taken care of in the EU, but also most people would associate it with member states rather than the EU. Social policy and the welfare state and especially benefits, it's still seen as a sort of national prerogative. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if people were kind of astonished if they knew already how much the EU does in social affairs, even if they probably, the EU probably could do more. But for instance, the European Social Fund is a massive fund, it's billions that finance projects in every EU countries, and I would think that a lot of people perhaps don't know about it. And so, yeah, because of this idea that social policy is national level, maybe it's just not something that people bring up in interviews.
3: Yeah, and if I may add to that very briefly, we have this other statistic which actually brings more optimism into the picture about it's a little older from 2016 but it asks young people young europeans how they would use a potential eurozone budget and we have millennials at all levels of education prioritizing, uh, supporting economically weaker countries. So over 40% of them cited this use of, of the budget, this mechanism. So there is a lot of solidarity there and interest really in action at the EU level, at least based on, on this particular statistic. And another very short point, of course, we were... We were not hiding that Guillaume and I we were disappointed with how few people cited social policy topics in the interviews, but those who did were really enthusiastic about them. So that's also something worth highlighting because the numbers sometimes don't provide the full picture and it's uh, helpful to to look at the specific quotes uh, that we got. So we had a young Polish IT specialist, for example, saying that uh, there should be a common European healthcare as a means of creating something similar to the United States of the EU. So I think the the enthusiasm there is, is clear. And then also from a completely different age group and different country, 52 uh, year old British Romanian teacher, so an older person, but still very much with a similar attitude towards this. I hope that the EU is a beacon of civility and progressive socialism where the health and happiness of people are prioritized over profit and the natural environment is protected, expanded, and treasured. So, yeah, the quality data sometimes reveal this more, I would argue, pointedly than the quantitative ones.
1: If I can now bring in one issue, Guillaume and Christian, that I think might connect. Our discussion of what young europeans want with what the eu is doing one of the very suggestive ideas in the chapter report is that of universal basic income especially at the european level now i think that idea ubi is very interesting but let's just
0: start with a factual question
1: is there any movement on this
0: at the european level the short answer would be no I'm afraid. Uh, Both because the focus at the minute is more on jobs and getting people back in jobs in the recovery. Now, after the phase of income support, now is the time, at least according to the EU, to put people back into jobs. The other thing would be, that I think it would be terribly difficult politically. You already see the, the minimum wage is already very difficult because you have to put so many countries together to accept it and UBI is even more revolutionary. On many, and I might be corrected by someone who did EU law on that, but um, on many social policy issues, as soon as it requires harmonization of social security rules, for instance, you need all countries to agree unanimously. And so on very ambitious social policy reforms, that also might be an obstacle. There is definitely a growing movement in EU member states. And for instance, I think that in Berlin, they've started the trial of an actual full universal basic income. And there is a movement for sure in Europe, in member states by civil society sometimes, but I think at EU level, I wouldn't see and I wouldn't foresee any movement on that front for uh, the near future, at least.
3: And it's important to remember that this remains a very popular policy. So the gap between uh, what governments do and what people want might be the widest for, 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 for this particular. Uh, policy because uh, according to our own polling wave from, from March 2020, uh, 71% of people in general and the exact same percentage of people aged 16 to 29 support uh, the introduction of UBI. It's slightly higher for it's 84% I think for, for young people in terms of supporting a higher minimum wage at the European level to fix it at a specific percentage of median income. But as Guillaume said earlier, even minimum wage action at the EU level is difficult, let alone UBI action. So uh, this part of the conversation might be a
0: little utopian. Because it's 27 countries, they have different cultures. And also that's the beauty of the EU is that we make things with 27 countries that might have quite different backgrounds and cultures. But on social policy and welfare state, which is really sensitive, it might be hard because countries have very different visions and you have countries that see the EU as a very political project, so, for instance, that, that could be France. But other countries see the EU more as a single market, and they want the EU to refrain as much as possible from getting into social issues. And many countries also see the welfare state as just a purely national thing. You have to remember that welfare state is very often tied to development of the nation state. And for instance, that's what we refer to in the chapter, well, we refer to Bismarck, because he's seen as the great-grandfather of the welfare state, And it's often said that he did that to cement the national identity in Prussia at the time. So all that to say that moving forward on things that can involve redistribution, taxation and redistribution of income and direct income support to citizens is very, very touchy in the EU. I should add, though, that while there's no move on universal basic income, as part of the fit for 55 environmental package there was a climate action fund that was created to compensate lower income households from the notably the increase in the price of fuel or, or transport and it's very interesting that this climate social action fund gives the possibility to use the money of that fund for direct income support it doesn't say you have to use it for direct income support but it says okay you can use the money to directly give to citizens And that is a big step for the EU, because it's something that member states for a long time have been feeling very sensitive about.
2: The opinion polls our team conducted in partnership with EU Opinions reveal that 71% of Europeans believe the state should give all citizens a basic income. You can find the link to our project's findings in the description. For now, listen to Rosa Mansell, a retired artist from the UK, tell us what she would like the EU to have achieved by 2030.
0: Definitely some kind of basic income for people, and for the
3: northern wealthier parts of Europe, like Netherlands and Germany and Sweden, to actually help the poorer parts like Portugal, uh, Spain, Italy, um to have uh, a better economic value
2: one thing that i found very interesting in uh, in the chapter is how young europeans Even though they value, much like the rest of Europeans, social policy issues in particular and employment and welfare, they do value these priorities differently and they're more willing to support some sort of policies than others compared to other generations. So UBI is one example, minimum wage policy as well. First of all, did this uh, surprise you in any way? And regardless of whether you expected it or not, do you have any tentative explanations for these nuances? Well, in terms of the
3: minimum wage specifically, uh, it's probably motivated by just how dire the situation is uh, in in real life and how far we are from a dignified, I would say, level of a minimum wage in in the EU. In some countries we have it, of course, but the general picture is not positive because – and Guillaume, you can correct correct me if I'm wrong about this – but France has a minimum wage at about 60%, I I read this somewhere, of, of the median wage of the country, which is good. But most countries don't even have 50%, and a couple of them have about 40 which is which is very, very low. So, of course, I think that can explain a part of, of citizens' frustration about this. But in terms of the gap between, again, young Europeans and the rest of the population, I would highlight gender equality from our research, and I think this is reflected in, in the report as well, as the, the one area where young people really stand out from the rest of the population. So for all the other issues that we cited before, yeah, a few percentage points here and there, but for, for gender equality, even though, of course, uh, it, it has now penetrated the mainstream and even old people are very much in favor of, of gender equality, I think the salience of gender equality to young people is really distinctive. Basically, 36% of young Europeans cite gender equality as part of the ideal future for the European Union. And I think they had to cite only, uh, they could only cite several aspects. And only 26%
0: of of the general population did that. So the gap here is particularly striking. And the other difference that I would notice is um, something that Christian hinted, hinted upon in the previous answer which is the um, solidarity between EU member states that shows in different polls. Uh, They are willing to support economically weaker countries, they are willing to support the unemployed, even if it's in other countries. They would be willing to use a hypothetical Eurozone budget to support people moving from one country to another to get jobs. And when you ask them what they would use the EU uh, money for if it was a Eurozone budget, one of the things they're the least enthusiastic about is uh, structural reform. And we know that the EU is all about structural reform. It's something that, for the, especially in the early 2010, a lot of money was granted only to states if they would reform this and that uh, in depth. And so we can see that um, young Europeans care a lot less about that and a lot more about uh, solidarity, which is very interesting. And again, I would say contrast with what I was also hinting upon before about how member states sometimes see welfare state as a national Perspective, it seems that young Europeans tend to be kind of going beyond that and don't necessarily care about who pays or where the solidarity is coming from, as long as there is some degree of solidarity and redistribution, which I found was interesting.
1: So, on this theme of what the EU is doing, I wonder if I can ask you, Guillaume, to reflect a bit on your time as a trainee at a European institution. So, you've worked with this project for a number of polls and reports and you've come to those conclusions and then now you've had that practical experience. How has that perspective from inside the institutions enriched the kinds of questions and findings that we can read about in the chapter?
0: I think the one thing it um, helps with is it helps you understand a lot more what the EU means, because I think a lot of us, even the most informed, put a lot of things together, like the EU is the commission, it's Van der Leyen, it's the council, and we don't really know what it means. And for me, I then realized the different actors and the interplay between them and how the commission interacts with the council. And for instance, it made me understand a lot more the dynamics around the minimum wage directive and how... It has been adopted by the Commission and the College of Commissioners, but now it has to go through the approval of the member states, which might amend it, which might reject it. So I think it really improved really, the understanding of what European social policy, of how it is made. Uh, and also, it was interesting to be inside at a time where social policy is really at the heart of the agenda of the EU. And it's a fairly recent thing. And it's not only COVID, it was before COVID. But honestly, in the early 2010s, all the EU seemed to talk about, as far as I can remember when I was younger, was, you know, budget, budgetary rules, stability. And it has started to change with the presidency of uh, Juncker, uh, who introduced the European pillar of social rights. And von der Leyen really committed to that. And von der Leyen is not a left-wing politician, right? She comes from uh, the CDU. But she really committed to this idea of a more social Europe, even before COVID. And I arrived at a time where the issue was really pressing, especially working on the SHORE program that talked about supporting short time work schemes. Uh, so it was really interesting to be inside the EU as well, at a time where the overall narrative is, has been changing in the past few years, where social policy investment is seen as legitimate. Uh, where social spending is encouraged, where reducing poverty and inequality uh, are objectives that are really put to the forefront of the EU, which is, as I said, a stark contrast to what I remember the EU being like 10 years ago, basically. We asked many
1: Europeans what they would like the EU to have achieved by 2030. Here is what Diana Zsoltos, a Hungarian communications officer, said to us.
0: Personally, I would love to see more social equality in every way possible because for me it looks strange that
3: while we are all Europeans in the EU, there are still different areas where the poverty is so bad. I
2: think we shouldn't allow that to be happening within the EU. So perhaps we could now start talking about what you think the European Union should do with regard to employment policy and welfare and social policy in general. So you've stated a series of proposals. Would you like to sum those up and then we could go deeper into some of them?
0: I would say of the, of each proposal, I think that the crisis has given the EU an opportunity to improve its social dimension with the recovery budget, with the spending uh, on shore, with other cohesion spending, which has been improved through the REACT-EU programme. And really it has put social issues at the forefront. And I think the main recommendation was that is something that the EU should um, seize and we should not let it go, that um, we have a foot in the door to improve the social dimension of the EU, that it hasn't always been the case, that it's not something we should take for granted, it's still something that uh, needs fighting for, because it's not always accepted in every part of the EU or by every political party. And so the general recommendation that I take from this is that if you take the fact that Europeans in general, and especially young Europeans, care so much about social issues, the fact that social issues are so salient and pressing for so many millions of Europeans. And the fact that there's loads of money now with this recovery budget and the effort that the EU is doing then it's an opportunity that the EU should look to seize and to keep this foot in the door in terms of social issues.
3: Yeah at this point I think it might be important to highlight that in the rhetoric of leading EU politicians both at the EU level and at the national level, so we mainly looked at what uh, von der Leyen and Macron and Merkel have to say about this, you have a lot of focus on social policy, as Giyong said, even more so now with the pandemic. But it's a very peculiar type of focus. And I think they don't necessarily mean the same thing that young Europeans mean uh, or the general population means about this. Because when it, when it comes to the rhetoric of, of, of politicians, social policy is there, but with, with strings attached, I would say. So even when the COVID-19 Recovery Fund was announced, of course... Uh, a huge triumph for social policy in the EU, but then von der Leyen described it not as a short-term crisis management, so she said this was the term to avoid, but rather as a boost to the EU's capacity uh, to to tap into new economic opportunities. Sorry, this was Merkel, not von der Leyen, but there has been similar rhetoric, uh, by von der Leyen as well. And then uh, Merkel also added that uh, this is not, not just a humane gesture but a lasting investment. European cohesion is not just a political imperative, but also something that will pay off. So you see this very kind of pragmatic uh, way of, of talking about social policy. And it ties into what we have in our uh, recommendation section about the importance of active labor market policies, because this seems to be as far as politicians will go in terms of social policy. So minimum wage and and UBI is... is perhaps less realistic to, to see a lot of progress on, on those fronts compared to these active labor market policies where states are uh, training their uh, citizens more adequately for a very fluid labor market where uh, you have to change jobs multiple times and requalify, retrain sometimes at a later age. So that might be one uh, particular kind of um, direction in which social policy can uh, move in the future.
1: There's a theme that we've mentioned before that I think needs to be brought up again now, which is the interplay between environmental and social policy. And it seems that you're emphasizing in the chapter that the EU really needs to make these exist in harmony rather than as opposing issues. But I wonder what you think about the hypothesis that there are significant trade-offs For example, the social and economic costs of carbon neutral by 2030 will be different from those of carbon neutral by 2050, depending also, of course, in which part of Europe you live in um, and what the economic situation there is. So I've really got two questions here. The first is, do you see significant trade-offs between social policy and climate action? And second, how can the EU be honest and effective in communicating what these trade-offs are to ensure that the public is in the know while
0: acting decisively
1: towards both priorities?
0: The two sort of trade-offs that I see are in terms of jobs. So you're going to be having jobs that are obsolete at some point and new industries emerging and old ones sort of dying out. And the other ones will be in terms of the price of energy because we know that the households that tend to use more fossil fuels tend to be lower income households you also have these trade-offs uh, geographically because of course you have many Eastern European countries that still rely on these technologies to, you know, hit their home and that employ a lot of people. So you have this, all these sort of trade-offs in the short term and I feel we need to be honest about them. I mean, it's gonna sound really basic, but one way, you know, you can compensate people and we shouldn't be shy and DU shouldn't be shy in saying we should give direct income support to people if in the times that are hard, we should give them, and that's the main game of this facility, to give them direct income support, to subsidise transport, to develop energy efficiency, to lower the bills. So I think the only way to overcome the trade-off is with income support and um, investment as well. That being said, the communication needs also to be honest. There is some legitimate worries about jobs, but it needs to be put in perspective with the emergency we're living in. We see it every, every day now this summer. And I feel like this emergency really needs to be emphasised and the role that the humans have uh, on that. But so that there's going to be cost and it's going to be a bit painful in the short term, um, but it can be overcome with uh, strong direct social policy, income support and investment spending is my feeling.
3: Yeah, maybe just a quick point on that earlier question about the potential overlap, but also tension between green issues and social issues. Uh, This was not in the report because we didn't have time to to delve into specific countries, Uh, but uh, the example of Germany comes to mind and how the Green Party uh, is now uh, trailing very closely CDA in Germany, according to the latest polls. And it seems that, uh, to a very large extent, the Green Party there, but also in other countries, has been emerging in the place of the more conventional social left-wing option, if you like, in the country. So it might be a good opportunity for social policy. It it might just be the case that these Green Parties will will allow voters on the the left who normally voted for the now obsolete or declining conventional left-wing parties to just Uh, vote for a hybrid of both green and social issues and a kind of rebranding of social policy could emerge as a result of that because the voters are are there they still pay a lot of attention to social policy it's just uh, a matter of politicians actually taking that into consideration and articulating it into policy so within that articulation green and social will hopefully uh, go hand in hand
2: Clearly articulating economic policy goals for the EU should be a priority according to Spiros Cosmidis, a lecturer in politics at the University of Oxford. Hear what he would like the EU to have achieved by 2030. I would like um, the EU to build infrastructure
0: to protect incomes across member states for those who are in need. Economic policy redistribution
3: should become a clear Kind of aim for the EU as a whole
2: so one of the very interesting proposals you you make is that the EU funds more trials, especially with regard to unemployment policies in different countries. Could you clarify how these funded trials would work? so would it be more in terms of incentivizing different member states to adopt employment policies tailored to their circumstances and therefore just seeing what they do and then comparing results? Or would it be more along the lines, This, these are our recommendations. We will fund this trial so long as you follow these recommendations and we expect some accountability.
0: The EU already has funding for this, it's a fund called uh, EASY, which funds innovative social policies. So. Um, One of the very basic suggestions is that uh, this fund could be given more size and visibility because I think that's one key point we make in the report and that's linked to everything we've discussed is that social policies need to be innovative. We're living in very changing times with the pandemic and climate change. And we also know that the welfare state, many welfare state uh, programs were designed in the fifties around a model where, you know, you had a male breadwinner and then women would stop working uh, as soon as they married. And a lot of programs are still designed around that, and it's very obsolete in many ways. So between this sort of long-run obsolescence and the sort of short-run emergency with the pandemic and climate change, we think that innovative social policy is more and more needed. And so I would say more along the first line of what you said is that we should be trying policies in different contexts, innovative policies, Uh, that work in local context and then share best practices and uh, the EU is already doing that so it's not a very revolutionary proposal we're making them but more insisting on how important it is and that this shouldn't be a minor fund I think it should be in coming years a very important fund of the EU moving forward. So
1: as we're talking about these recommendations that you've suggested in the chapter there's one interviewee whose remark reminds me of of this connection that I think is lurking behind our discussion, which is that between social policy and economic policy, and also, I suppose, the relationship between public policy and what's happening in markets. And this interviewee, Adolfo Nunez, says that what he wants for Europe in 2030 is to be as competitive as China and the United States in the new economy. That is crucial to have better jobs better paid jobs more opportunities and to be able to be competitive would mean that we would have a better education and a better social system so i wanted to ask you because we've talked about various aspects of social policy including solidarity and universal basic income and minimum wage but this aspect of economic competitiveness has not been highlighted in the chapter and in our discussion and i wonder What do you think about that? Does does it seem like young Europeans don't care as much as Adolfo does? Or how would you make that connection?
3: Yes, I'm not sure if there were any polling data that we could use on on this. And you're right, Lucas, it's an important connection between economic policy and social policy. But in terms of just the, the issue in general, in one of these social policy speeches that Macron delivered and that we looked at, For the report, even though it was technically a social policy speech, the French president went really quickly from discussing uh, actual social policies into how it's really important for the EU to fund more generously uh, the European Innovation Council and give it a budget on on par with the United States. So uh, this is also in line again with that kind of productivist active labor labor market. Uh, approach that we discussed earlier that is very much present in how politicians talk about social policy nowadays, if we can even call it social policy. So they have this trade-off between economic growth and having a safety net very much at the back of their their minds. But then, of course, issues like the pandemic always remind us that uh, you can't have growth without having a safety net. So especially in an interconnected world like the one today. So we hope that in the future, these issues will continuously be viewed as overlapping and mutually reinforcing rather than conflicting.
0: I would say in terms of economic competitiveness, as Christian mentioned, there's not so much data I can think of. The only few I can think of is the one that I already mentioned is when asked about how they would use a Eurozone budget. They tend to focus a lot more on solidarity and redistribution than Structural reforms and reforms to make economy more competitive. There's also two fairly relevant. One I would say is that they would favour, but just like the general population, uh, a fairer taxation of big firms and big tech companies. And that for them, they see there is this one polling question which I always find interesting, where they say that free market economy should come with a high level of social protection. So I feel like. Quite a lot for young people and a lot of Europeans, increasingly, but especially for young people, social policy is seen as something competitive, as something improving their competitiveness. It's not incompatible. It's a form of social investment. And in terms of global competitiveness, I think the next big debate at European level, and that relates to what our interviewee said about China and the US, will be about budgetary rules. Because for years, we've known that the EU is very strict and tight about its budget. Um, except that uh, we compete with the US and China, who they spend bottomless money. They, they're they not as strict with their spending as the EU are. And that, in certain respects, I think can give them a competitive advantage. And I know that at the EU level, it's a very, very hot debate. So I'm not saying we're going to move uh, for sure towards... A change in budget rules, but that is definitely something that's going to be on the table, and that is important for competitiveness uh, and also there's a general direction question, which is that to be competitive with the u s and china I mean my view and the view of some people is the uh, EU needs to be closer and closer together? I mean together we're a block of nearly five hundred millions and we can achieve a lot in terms of industrial policy and r and d but while we are a union, we're not completely a bloc yet, like China and the US are. And to me, a lot of the solutions would be closer European integration.
1: The prospect of more European unity is an ideal for many Europeans. Alexander Bawarowski, a Polish IT specialist, is one of the young Europeans who we interviewed. Listen to what he had to say when asked about what he wants the EU to do.
0: By 2030, I would like European Union to be something more than glorified trade bloc. I strongly believe in more European Union as, for example, European Army, European healthcare, European uh, social system, European uh, code of conduct, common rules and laws that apply to all member states equally. I believe something similar to maybe United States of America as EU.
2: So how would you respond to critics of deeper integration You know, how how do you defend these solutions?
0: I think it's a very good question. And it's a very important point to make, especially in the UK, right? Is people feel, especially in the debate around Brexit, confuse sovereignty with power, wealth, development, prosperity. The reason I'm saying that is that we shouldn't lie to people. The EU does involve your state giving up a bit of its sovereignty in certain respects, because you have to do things with 27 other countries also in certain areas, the EU has exclusive competence. But the reason we're doing that is precisely to make this country stronger, Is that because we think that we're going to be stronger doing this together, that France is going to be more prosperous, that the Czech Republic is going to be more prosperous, Sweden is going to be more prosperous. And the reason I'm saying that is that in the UK debate, it always felt like in this debate about Brussels or Brussels has all the power. But no it's the, the member states voluntarily chose to give up some of their power because they thought they would be stronger together and trade is an example for instance France and Germany cannot negotiate trade agreements on their own the EU has exclusive competence but the rationale is that you know if you negotiate a trade deal with a block of 27 countries you're going to have better terms that if France went to negotiate on its own with uh, China Japan or Malaysia for instance so I feel this sort of clear communication about why we are integrating is very much needed and I think it's completely lacking and often politicians in national and member states are guilty of that of saying oh it all comes from Brussels as if it was this dark entity that was imposing all its orders but Brussels is the congregation of member states coming together because that's the European Council it's all the heads of member states it's a very collegial decision-making and the European Parliament can block any proposal that the Commission makes and the European Parliament is elected by people and I'm saying that very enthusiastically because before starting my traineeship for the EU I was very pro-EU but you know I wasn't immune to the sort of discourse or it's too bureaucratic it can be anti-democratic and now having been in it it has changed my perspective from that because you understand a lot more what the EU is and how it processes so I think um, yeah clear communication on why we give the EU power And also incentivizing people to turn up more. I don't know how you do that. The political scientist and Christian could maybe answer better. But the European Parliament actually has powers. So people should vote. It's important that you vote in European elections. Because the European Parliament can amend laws and can block proposals from the Commission. And it really has a say in what the European Union might uh, offer.
2: Right, but there was this uh, polemic issue, or not polemic issue, but perhaps embarrassing for the European Union, which was a vaccination scheme, and it wasn't very well managed. Whereas the UK, who had some issues in dealing with the pandemic at the beginning, was then very praised worldwide for its vaccination scheme. So in the face of these not-so-successful initiatives, how would you, again... Respond to critics of the EU with regard to more involvement in national employment and social policies?
0: Well, I think you, you can have them on how specifically the short term view and the long term view. The short term view is that indeed uh, in March, April, there's no denying, or February, December 2020, and early 2021, there's no denying that the UK uh, was more successful in uh, getting the vaccine and rolling it out. And it has to be remembered that health was not an EU-level issue at all before this pandemic. It was one of the few areas that remain exclusive competence of the member states. So very suddenly, the EU had to act in an area where they had no prior experience in doing so, which I think can partly explain why it was slightly shaky at the start, though I would argue now that it has been quite successful if we look at it six months later. And the reason I talk about the the more long-term perspective is, in fact, I think, if anything, it vindicates EU action, this pandemic, because unfortunately, uh, and I don't want to be you know, too pessimistic, I'm not sure it is the last of these sort of disasters that we see. And it has shown that there is value in acting together, even on a topic like health. And yes, it was a bit shaky it was because it was the first time. But you know, it's good to have coordination about where a virus might be present in the EU, coordination about how to manage borders, Coordination about how to get vaccines, about how to maybe also distribute more of these vaccines to countries outside the EU, because that's also uh, another issue. And it might have been a bit shaky at the start, but I think it's a really interesting foundation to be better able to deal collectively with these problems in the future. And if they might emerge, we will notice that again, we will be stronger as Europeans dealing with them. And so the short term perspective is that indeed, probably the UK did better, but in the long run, I think collectively will be stronger to answer to these problems should they re-emerge. And also,
3: what was the alternative is, is a question we need to be asking ourselves. Uh, do, would, would we have wanted to live on a continent where every country would purchase vaccines by itself and enormous inequalities would ensue on such a life and death matter, right? So uh, the EU was instrumental to preventing that and it, it did prevent that kind of inequality even though at the cost of of slightly slower procurement in the the beginning, which has uh, picked up in the meantime, of course. But also, in terms of how democratic and how bureaucratized the European Union is and and, and the relevance of that for social policy, I mean, by most theoretical, I think, frameworks, uh, the EU still very much qualifies as an intergovernmental organization and not as a supranational organization. Member states still enjoy a lot of power, a lot of issues are decided on a one country, one vote basis. The veto apparatus is there for so many issues, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. So uh, it's certainly not the case that nation states are powerless to stop any kind of uh, trends in the EU that they dislike. So if they ever feel like social policy is becoming too much of a of a focus, uh, they can always roll it back. So that's probably not the most valid criticism of, of more social policy action at the EU level, because it will always be, at the end of the day, at the discretion of... Uh, both
0: nation states. If I can add two things to that. First, if you actually look it, the, the start for the vaccine in the health aspect was a bit shambolic. But on the other hand, on social policy, the EU was very, very reactive. It suspended the budgetary rules to allow member states to spend whatever they want very quickly. It implemented the show SURE programs so of billions to finance short-time work schemes. So I don't think you can infer too much from the difficult start on the health front. Um, in terms of the social one. And I think, to be honest, part of it is because the EU has a lot more experience in managing funds and managing social funds and the economics of social policy and all these sort of things. And so they were able to react quickly and quite swiftly in that respect. And to come back to the health thing, and again, um, that's a broader perspective. But I think um, uh, sometimes you need to think back about what the EU is and its purpose. And a lot of it, it's about peace, right? It's about peace between member states and member states that fought each other for uh, years, decades, sometimes centuries, coming together. And the reason I'm saying that is um, that when France was re-struggling with the first wave, a lot of French patients were uh, taken care of in Germany. And I mean, you may want to ask a historian to confirm that, but I'm not sure this would have happened in the 30s. So that's also one thing that we shouldn't lose from sight when we talk about the use, this solidarity between member states and nation states it's unprecedented and i think uh, we should also be thankful for that aspect
1: our guests today were guillaume Pogam and christian idonofsky
2: a huge thanks to our podcast editor billy Cragen our research manager, Louisa Mello, and our report editor, Professor Timothy Garten-Ash.
1: We're also grateful to our funders, the Friedrich Naumann Foundation, the Zeit Stiftung and the Stiftung Mercator for making the Europe Stories project and podcast possible.
2: A special thank you to Ellen Liefstedt, Lily Streiter, Maeve Moynihan, Sophie Verte, and Victoria Hansel for contributing to the podcast production. Music by Unicorn Heads and Ketta finally thank you to the whole europe stories project team i'm your host anna martins
1: and i'm your host lucas thank you for listening today
2: join us for the next episode of the europe stories podcast and until then you can find out more about our research project at europeanmoments.com